everyone and happy Monday. This is Lauren Friedman Albert, known on the Twitters as Lauren, and I'd like to welcome you back to another amazing episode of Cisco Champions Radio. Today we're talking about smart buildings. Can they be smart? Will they overcome us in the great smart building leadership? Okay, I just got way off script. Anyways, so please settle in, join us for the next half hour, and we'll deep dive into what's cool and new. Uh, just a reminder, you can always learn more about any of the topics we cover here on Cisco Champions Radio simply by clicking on the link provided in the descriptions below. But wait, there's more. If you could be so kind as to leave a comment or note for us in your podcast platform, that would bring joy to our hearts. All right, let's get started um, meeting our host and fabulous champions. So Bob, we'll start with you. Can you tell us more about you? What, who are you? What do you do? Hello, champions. Uh, Bob Sisser, I'm a business solutions manager, office out of New York here with Cisco, and been leading the charge in this transition that's occurring in the marketplace around smart buildings. Fantastic. Mark, you're up next. Oh, wow. Um, I'm Mark Siebeling. I'm a principal at Devo Team uh, in Europe in The, in the Hague. Um, my Twitter handle is at NetCICD, and that's also the repo that I have on GitHub. I do a lot of automation, also around buildings, and uh, I, one of my customers is, is replacing about 60 building internal infrastructure, so it is something that I'm really interesting in, interested, interested in to get to know how it is going to evolve, evolve over time, especially after COVID. Fantastic. Um, and for those of you who have a bingo card at home, we did get the center COVID square, so you've got that out of the way. Evan, tell us about yourself. Thanks, Lauren. Uh, Evan Mincer. I am an information security manager located in Pennsylvania. You can find me on the Twitters at Evan Mincer. Fantastic. Mir, my friend, last but not least. Yes, yeah, sure. Um, my name is Mihosemi Rossemi. I am a, a network and cloud security engineer or DevSecOps engineer. In iTron, uh, which we deal a lot with IoT technologies, and I'm super passionate about any anything related to IoT and the word smart. Ah, yes, we all want to be smart. Uh, so, Bob, <laughs> kicking it back to you, what is new and exciting in the land of brilliant buildings? Brilliant buildings. Well, <laughs> so there's an amazing transition that's occurring in the marketplace. So as the champions know, we've released 90-watt power of Ethernet. And that 90 watt power Ethernet is enabling us to connect the previously unconnected in the built environment. So we're seeing this massive transition to low voltage DC, i.e. PoE, for the built environment components such as lighting, shade motors, variable speed air volumes in the ceilings of buildings, and things that we've never dreamed were connected are now being connected to the infrastructure, creating networks that are larger than IT infrastructures. Can you give an example of things that are connected as well? Connected as well. So besides lights and shade motors for electric shades inside of interior office space and the VAVs that we talked about, we have customers that are using power Ethernet for refrigerators in hotels. So literally the mini bars in the refrigerator in hotel rooms for the refrigerators, the electric mirror TVs inside of hotels um, are all moved over to POE. So as we see this 90 watt world, we're seeing more and more opportunities to push everything to low voltage DC because fundamentally all these devices are DC devices and why not give them what they want versus what we traditionally do with AC. Wait, okay, sorry, I'm interrupting the flow here. 
what are mirror TVs? I feel like I've like been going to the wrong hotels or did I just mishear you? No, you're, you're absolutely right. So you, maybe you have been going to the wrong hotels. The, the hotels, <laughs> the electric mirror year. TVs are, uh-huh. of course, um, but the electric mirror TVs are typically found in, in higher end hotels where you actually walk into the bathroom. It looks like a TV. And as you're getting ready in the morning and brushing your teeth, you can touch the screen, the mirror. There's actually a TV behind it that lights up, makes it opaque, and you can watch TV as you're brushing your teeth. That is insane. Okay, champions, back to you. <laughs> so, so Bob, I, I want to ask. I, I saw a great, uh, great video from Cisco that went along this that talked about how when you go back into the office, it can do things like you know, do different lighting for cl- for cleaning. It can show you where to go to the desk, all that. So it almost seems like you know, this is kind of driven by COVID. Is it really like a COVID-driven design or is there more to it? You know, we started seeing this transition before COVID, right? So if you look at the New York City marketplace alone, there's 4 million square feet of space that customers are adopting this technology. Um, prior to COVID, it was around half that. But what's happened during COVID is, is that people have realized that we need to care more about the built environment. We need to care about air quality, right? We've learned that COVID likes to get spread in, in, air, qual- in air that may not be you know, conducive to us as humans, emerging pathogens, et cetera. So what through what's happened through COVID is it's really validated the position of the ability to ta- attach all these other discrete sensors to a single platform to enable these experiences. And as we move forward through COVID, right, the density challenge has also been front and center, as everyone knows, with the social distancing measures we've done globally here. Um, you know, the met- ability to monitor the density of of of, of uh, space, the ability to count people in conference rooms. So all these things and the technology that we've classically had from a a platform standpoint are now being absolutely front and center. And we're being a a big, you know, supplier from a standpoint of enabling some of the things that need to occur for us to return to the office safely. So if I understand you correctly, it is the end of the power company inside of the office building. Kind of. (laughs) We need power. We need the source power. But what we're doing is we're transitioning that traditional distribution of AC line voltage to DC. And we're doing that because if you fundamentally look at the built environment, look around you in an office building, even in your home, an LED is a piece of silicon. It requires DC power. Shade motors, they're DC, right? If you look at the any, any energy star appliance, like those refrigerators I was referring to, referring to before, they're DC as well. Let's give them what they want versus taking AC and plugging them in and having to convert it to DC at a very low wattage. And that conversion takes heat, doesn't it? That conversion, there's loss in every single conversion, right? So if you look at, you know, an LED light bulb that you screw into your you know socket at home, there's a probably a 20% energy loss there because you're taking AC out of that light that lamp socket and converting it to DC to power that LED. And what about loss in the in the network cables then? So if you look at the loss in the network cable side of it, right? So if you look at the I squared R transmission loss um, from a power perspective, is is that we've done a lot of work with cabling partners around the world, where there's now category cable being produced, whether it's 5E, 6, 6A that is 22 gauge conductor inside of there versus, you know, a 23 or 24 gauge conductor uh, that, you know, the larger the conductor size, the less loss you get from a power transmission standpoint. 
So we've done a lot of work around there in terms of looking at the cabling side of it. And that's why cabling and the choice around cabling and connectivity is so key in an environment. When you move up from a 30 watt PoE environment to 60 and 90, it's things that you must pay attention to now. And really it's driven by conductor size, like I said, and there's a lot of manufacturers now that are producing cable with the 22 gauge conductors in it to minimize that line loss. So, so Bob, the whole idea of, uh, I mean, you were talking about, speaking of cables, networking cables, the whole idea of uh, the evolution of, of data, data over the cabling networks that we had in 2005, I guess, around that first PBX, then uh, we had IP cameras, 2000s, and then 2010, uh, uh, BACnet, and now we are talking. So it's, it's evolving all the time, right? But having all of this data converged over the IP uh, IP cable, how about the security aspect of that, Bob, when it comes to, to IoTs in, in buildings? It's a great question, Mir. It's when we look at the security aspect of things, um, when we when we looked at this environment, and Cisco's been on this journey in terms of working with our partners in this, um, that build the actual, the thi- I call them the, the, the thing makers, if you would, from an internet of things perspective. Um, we've worked with them in terms of the stack of software that's on top of those devices. And that stack is a full stack, just not IP, right? But what's below IP, right? So technologies like LLDP that we all know and love in the network world. We've also enabled MUD protocol on there. So from a MUD perspective is, is that the ability to understand what kind of devices they are and what network to put them on, right? What segment to do that. Um, so those are the technologies we've put in place. And we even see some of the vendors putting in 802.1X down on a on a light. So you think about that light, there's actually now a 32-bit microcontroller that's running there that has all this software running to make sure that we can secure it. And the same rules apply from a network standpoint in terms of segmentation, firewalling, looking at north, south, east, west traffic, there's been nothing changed from a fundamental traffic standpoint. It's really about how do we secure those endpoint devices. So in other words, Cisco makes sure that not an attacker wouldn't turn off and turn on my lights, right? That, that would be a bad day. <laughs> yeah, I was just yeah. thinking like, you know, if someone gets hold of, of your main infrastructure and your entire building goes offline. But anyways, that would be bad. I'll be quiet now. <laughs> No, those conversations happen, Lauren. It's uh, and, and that's what we do, right? We think about security starting from the endpoint all the way up through the entire network stack, right? In terms of how we secure these environments. And like I said, it's, you know, the, the security tools that we have from a classic standpoint are being used here. Um, and, you know, the advanced functionalities that we have from a software-defined access perspective up into endpoint analytics with DNA Center, all those tools still apply here. We're just applying them at a different scale with different components. So what do we need to change to those systems? Uh, do we have to uh, triplify ICE and double DNAC? And I mean, DNAC has a limit in the number of endpoints. So it depends on scale, right? And as I mentioned in, in before is that these networks that we're building um, are sometimes 1.5 times the size of the IT network, right? So the OT network in these buildings are 1.5 times the size of the IT network in the same space. So there's definitely a scale component here. And we look at the scale component in a couple of ways. One is just number of shear devices. So if you take a, a typical space of 350,000 square feet, and I'll ask Mark and, and Mir to convert that for me to meters, um, but 350,000 square feet, 
it's 2000 uh, light ports and 1000 shade ports, right? So that's the scale on the network side. But then what's occurring on the back end of that, there's oftentimes an 11 to one fan out, as I call it. So of those ports that are connected, there's 11 other devices sitting behind it, whether they're sensors or light switches or luminaires. So that scale piece is on the ethernet side of it. So yes, coming back to your question, Mark, around how do we size this, right? There's definitely sizing aspects in terms of looking at the platforms on how to support and manage all this. Um, but there's also another key component in terms of just a sheer scale is that power matters. And as you're driving 90 watts, right, to endpoints, that adds up pretty quickly if you look at it on say a 9300 24 port, 24 ports times 90, that's a lot of power. So there needs to be careful mind, you need to be mindful when you do your closet design in particular um, around the amount of power that is going to be required to power all of these devices. So the, the, the equipment rooms that you have in your building may need to be recabled in order to deliver enough power to that. T and typically in this environment where, you know, it's a lot of greenfield space. So, you know, not net new building stock, but net new office space where customers are building out. So the right design is put in place and you're, you know, what you're doing, right, is shifting the load, the electrical load from a traditional electrical closet now to a IT closet. Um, so from that standpoint is, is that you're really just moving that load to another location. So the amount of power that's being provided from a base building standpoint doesn't change. It's just where it actually lands on the physical floor plate changes. So it's kind of, okay. I'm, I'm giving a layer of intelligence to my uh, power closet, right? Absolutely. Yeah, so it doesn't have to be for, for net new, you know, new installations. I mean, you can retrofit some of the, some of the stuff. I mean, because if you're delivering 90, you know, 90 watts down to the, the desk, you can power other things. I mean, long ago, we added phones to the network. Why not add other things that are 90 watts or less? Right. I was when we were I was thinking about the the closet side of it, but Evan, you're absolutely right, right? It's just not net new build. As we transition to ninety, these other devices that are that are coming online, you know, we have you know, there's furniture manufacturers around the world that are looking at building height adjustable desks that are PoE. And yeah, how, we how see, much power does the height height you know to raise and lower a desk does it really need? Right, exactly. And then if you look at the some of the other um, components, as you think about USB C. And how universal that has become in terms of powering laptops. We have schools that are using USB-C to power laptops. There was just recently something, um, a blog post on Cisco.com around schools that are using USB-C that take 90 watt PoE, plug it into a USB-C dongle and provide a power and data path down to charge laptops in classrooms um, because it's safer. They can install it easily and you're not running line voltage and conduit and you know all the the things you get into from a built environment standpoint with ADA compliance, et cetera. Yeah. So then if the school wants to redesign that, that classroom for some reason, they don't have to worry about bringing out the electrician to get all cable running everywhere. They're just running a network cable to each location. Absolutely. And if you extend that to the built in the office environment, if you can have a truly mobile, mobile desk, um, as we emerge from COVID here is that, you know, space needs to be more flexible. Um, and a lot of times the flexibility was encumbered by the built environment of desks being, you know, hardwired with hard, you know, pipe and conduit down into the desk furniture um, where they couldn't be moved. So, Bob, who are the uh, main partners with Cisco on this in this arena? 
And so, so if we look at the, the partnership um, model here is that, you know, from a Cisco standpoint is we've worked, so in the lighting world, so we'll, let's look at lighting first. Um, when we look at lighting partners such as Igor, Molex, Platformatics, Signify, New LEDs, Innovative, there's a lot of manufacturers out there now that are building and MHT lighting as well that are building combination of the components that go into lights, right? Or they build the, the total solution, right? Of lights and the drivers together. Um, when we think about, you know, shade motors, as an example, Somfy um, is a big partner. They're the world's largest uh, motor manufacturer from a, a motorized shade standpoint. So, so Somfy Motors. And you look at the mini bars as an example, is from a company called Dometic. A lot of folks probably know Dometic from either hospitality or the camping world. RVs are very popular in. So our partners um, across the board from the standpoint of these built environment devices, and then we look at the BMS partners from the standpoint of the building management systems like Johnson Control, Schneider, you know, Siemens, uh, Delta Controls, et cetera, um, on that side of it. So as we go into projects, we, you know, it's usually a combination of, uh, of all of them um, in terms of enabling the customer to achieve what they want from a smart building outcome standpoint. So this seems to be a huge opportunity for the IT uh, departments in order to uh, become the catalyst in this new change. Uh, absolutely. You know, it's for, for me, it's exciting to see an opportunity where we have yet another convergence opportunity. And you think about voice, you think about video, you think about broadcast video all coming to IP. Um, now it's all these built environment components are coming to the network and you're not only doing the control side of it, but also also the power side of it. And that's another key element, right, is on the, when you think about power, we've done a lot of work there from a Cisco standpoint. And looking at technologies like fast PoE, where the ability for you to plug in the switch and the first thing we're gonna do is turn on 30 watt PoE now versus having to wait for the switch to fully boot up. Um, and then tools like perpetual PoE. So from a perpetual PoE standpoint is you can literally reboot the switch. You take a 9300, issue a reload command on it, it's gonna reboot, power is gonna stay on. So whatever was negotiated prior is gonna stay on. So. It also helps, right, not just from the built environment standpoint, but we all know when there's a power outage and say the UPS can't carry the load, you think about, oh boy, all the devices that need to now reboot and come online and hopefully they come online right, right? Um, now it's just a matter of we'll keep them up. They're going to lose IP connectivity and then the IP starts flowing once the data plane comes up. So how can we ease the mind of the IT teams? I mean, they're facing a huge challenge. The network is doubling in size and uh, they get a lot of uh, uh, devices connected to the network that where the complete building relies on what they're doing. Um, is there a way to, uh, what does this Cisco do to help them manage all that transition that they're going through? And keep in mind, Bob, further to what Mark said, IT people are really resistant to change. <laughs> yeah, so, and that's just why, you know, coming back to your question, Mark and Mir around, um, that's why it was very important to us as we looked at this, um, we've been going on this journey in terms of looking at this convergence opportunity. We didn't want to create a bunch of new tools, right, that people needed to go and adapt and have two different tool sets as an example for IT and OT. So we've taken those same tool sets, and that's why I mentioned before LLDP as a simple example, right? To know what the device is, you can see visibility into it. 
Um, so those same tools apply, right? From a network standpoint, these devices are just another device. What I think we need to be, we need to look at is the scale side of this. And as we look at the scale side of this is that, you know, when you look at DNA center, as an example, um, the ability to automate more things there from what we're doing from a DNA uh, standpoint um, is, is key. And also looking at the power side of it. So if you think about the world of, you know, is my phone up and running? Is my access point up and running? Is my physical security camera up and running? That was really the PoE devices, right? Um, on a broad scale. Now it's all these other components. So we've added a lot of things to DNAC as an example on the PoE assurance side, and you'll continue to see more and more items added there where we're now pulling in all this data, right? We're pulling in what's been allocated, what the utilization data is to give you eyes and ears into the entire environment from a power standpoint. And I think when we look at what's occurring here from a, from a global standpoint around decarbonization, and Mir, this is probably near and dear to your heart from a Nitron metering standpoint is, when you plug that device into the network, I can tell you down to a 10th of a watt what it's actually utilizing. So you think about sub-metering, it's sub-metering on steroids. So now from an IT perspective, we, you know, we have the opportunity to be really front and center in terms of enabling um, our you know, respective businesses around the sustainability side of things and what we're trying to do from a sustainability standpoint, because we can provide all this data around what are we actually using from a power standpoint. And then if we're trying to trim the load, where do we point at? What do we do? How do we do that, right? We can give you know, um, sustainability officers, the ability to have eyes and ears into the real true utilization and how do we impact that as the world looks to decarbonize. That's right. So the IT team is is sitting on, on top of the information that it needs to uh, basically enable that change. And the IT team is going to be the enabler for that transition in order for them to meet their goals. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that's the most exciting part, Mark, is you know, the enablement opportunity that we do have in front of us from an IT standpoint, um, when you think about the, the built environment. And is this also going to DNA spaces? So DNA spaces. So when you look at, you know, we focus a lot here on the infrastructure side of it, right? When you think about 90 watts and what we can do with 90 and getting these devices on. But what do we do with that data, right? All these devices are generating data. And we're looking at DNA spaces as a platform aggregation side of things from a data standpoint. So you've seen us announce things in the real estate world um, with partnerships that look at occupancy data from Wi-Fi, like the IBM Tririga partnership that's been announced that's out there. Um, DNA spaces is gonna be more and more front and center into the data aggregation side and then the forwarding of that data through the Firehose API to customers that want to build their own applications or other platforms, right? We're really using that to unlock all this data once it gets on the, once you put these devices on the infrastructure, I'm going to generate data. I'm consolidating a bunch of infrastructures when you look at these sensor technologies, especially after COVID, looking at CO2 levels inside of buildings, looking at particle count, right? PM 2.5 sensors inside of buildings. That data needs to go somewhere. And that's going to be the DNA spaces side of it um, from a Cisco standpoint. And then expanding outside of our, you know, the portfolio um, outside of DNA spaces, when you look at what we're doing in the collaboration world, we've added a bunch of technologies there as well with sensor technology on our navigator. And then, of course, the ability for us to count people was a natural byproduct of what we do from a video standpoint, be able to provide real-time occupancy data of space, which is absolutely critical to anyone that's managing a facility or real estate footprint. Oh, God, this, uh, this 
topic is so exciting that I have so many questions, but I'm <laughs> I'm just gonna <laughs> stab at two of them, uh, Bob. So one of them, having a scalability in mind, what is the roadmap for roadmap for this for IPv6? Yes, roadmap. I mean, not roadmap in that. <laughs> I know Lauren, you are a bit sensitive about that. <laughs> Work. That's on the corner of my bingo card. <laughs> Go ahead, my friend. So, so what is the IPv6 perspective with with, uh, with this whole initiative? And the other question I had, which was which is irrelevant to the first one, um, in simple, <coughs> excuse me, in simple format, Bob, how is this is going to help me to in the COVID era, post COVID era, I would say, uh, for for my employees to return to the office while ensuring the health and safety of them. Yeah, so, so great question. Um, from the standpoint of, of roadmap, right? Well, the, the good news is from the roadmap question is IPv6, we support that, right? From a network standpoint. Um, it's really fundamentally a device question, right? In terms of the devices that we're plugging in, are they IPv6 capable? Um, and the answer is yes, depending on the manufacturer. So those details need to be gone through. Gone through. Um, you know, as I mentioned, that 4 million square feet and large deployments of like 800,000 square feet, um, we're still using the 1918 space. So we haven't run into a situation that we've done a deployment where, you know, IPv6 was a must from a sheer scale standpoint um, when you start thinking about 1918. But, you know, without a doubt, vendors are moving their stacks to V6. Okay. Um, from that standpoint. So is it the second question? The sec, the the second question, Mir, I'm going to ask you to repeat that uh, about the post COVID era. Post COVID era. So when you, there's two fundamental things when we think about when you think about COVID, right? Um, if you think about real estate in general, right, things that we never thought about as IT folks, there was a movement to density. Density was like a really good word because I can get more people in less space, right? And that less space means I have less dollars being you know shelled out from a from a lease standpoint. We've learned that density is bad, right? From a COVID standpoint. Um, so really when we think about density now, we think density needs to not be so dense anymore, right? We need to get, get rid of density. Um, and how do we monitor that, right? So what we've heard from customers is, is that they really want transparency about space. And when I say transparency about space, people want the ability to know how occupied my space is. So if I want to come to the office, it's a very personal decision in terms of when we do reopen, um, depending on where you are in the world, is when you go back to the office, I may want to know how many people are in there before I go because I want to make that choice myself. So when we think about DNA spaces coming back to that from a platform standpoint, is the ability to use Wi-Fi data to understand how many people are in space. Um, and use API triggers and the things that are with that platform, we can absolutely you know, accomplish right from a density standpoint. We also, if you think about our other part of our portfolio inside the collaboration world, we have the ability to do people count inside of rooms, right? From a collaboration endpoint standpoint, we're always counting people even when you're out of a call. We now have ability to push rules there that says, well, this is a six person room, but for COVID purposes and density, we want it to be a three person room. We'll actually pop an alert on the screen that says, you know, sorry, you're over the, you know, what we set from a guideline standpoint. You can also then say, um, okay, we constantly uh, measure the PPM. So uh, we let in people into the room uh, up to the point where either the CO2 level is too high or the PPM is too high or... And that's a great, great point, Mark, because that's a second area. So we talked about density. The next one is around health and wellness. So what COVID has taught us is, is that we need to care about quality of air, 
inside of buildings. When you think about a large building, a lot of times you can't control that quality of air. And the reality is, is that if you think about the way to run a large building, anytime you need to bring in fresh air, you need to heat it or cool it. And that costs money, right? So you try to minimize that. But what we've learned through COVID is, is that, and you can you know look at a lot of literature out there and, and folks that build buildings and own buildings and landlords, they're increasing what we call the air turns, right? So the amount of fresh air that's constantly being brought into the building, but how do we monitor that? And that's really when you think about the ability for us to use the BLE component on the 9100 series um, catalyst access points, the ability to take an Igor, Molex, or Platformatics, MH, any of the partners that I mentioned before, their nodes, and the plug-in CO2 sensors or plug-in PM2.5 sensors to look at particle count in the air. Um, we now, from an IT standpoint, can be an enabler of being able to provide air quality measurements. And we've had some customers go as far as saying, hey, we want to publish this data. We want to publish this data on our screens inside of our conference rooms. We want to publish this data, say, on, a, on an app, on a, on a mobile device to give people comfort that as they go into space that, you know, we're paying attention to things that we've learned through COVID um, in terms of air quality. And we saw that pivot real time in some of the projects that we were doing throughout COVID was adding that sensor capability. And that was really when you think about a platform. Not only is the network the platform, obviously, but when you think about moving all these built environment components to low voltage, that data path is everywhere now. It's above your head. So they were simply just adding sensors to the environment, um, which was really powerful in terms of being able to pivot real time and, and being confident that anything you do in the future, you'll be able to adapt the, the technology to. Mark, did you get your question answered, though, in terms of how they tell you there's too many people in the room? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Or did I? Okay. So, so Bob, I'm, I'm thinking going back to my previous experience around designing buildings and back you know, 10 years ago, it was like, okay, well, voice was on the network and you might have some, uh, some uh, cameras on the network, but there was a separate network for BMS, building management services, separate network for audiovisual, uh, manufacturing had its own network, things like that. But now we can converge all those. What does that do to the, uh, the network design aspect? So when you, when you think about the network design, and, and Evan, great question, right, is that we haven't broken the rules in terms of saying, you know, core, collapse core, di core distribution access, right, you know, that whole model that we've had for years, none of that goes out the window, right? Where you're, what you're looking at is the decision point is my access layer becomes much bigger. So my access layer, right, instead of one stack in a closet, it might be two stacks. And then the next decision point is, is that do I have an OT stack? and an IT stack of switches, as an example, or, or an OT chassis and an IT chassis um, from a closet standpoint? Or do I look at this from the standpoint of just a block of ports that all have the same capability? And let's use the intelligence that we build in through DNAC and endpoint analytics and the tool sets that we have to just plug in the device, understand what it is, apply policy to it automatically, and, and let the environment run. Yeah, so security is security is extremely important there because obviously you don't want your client device to be able to talk to you. That's exactly um, to Ivan's port. You are right, Bob. That we will have a I would say wider uh, access or uh, yeah wider access uh, surface, but at the same time we will have wider attack surface. So how Cisco is going to uh, help us to make sure that that's secure? I I, I really don't know if that's true, Mir, because. Um... What you can do is you can standardize the config 
which is what I've been doing at a lot of cost, uh, customers, completely standardize the config in the closets and move the intelligence away from the building to a centralized area. And that means that nobody will ever have to touch the stuff in the building anymore. So from my standpoint, the attack surface became a lot smaller. Yeah, but that's, uh, I think that's, um, um, yeah, I mean, that would work if everything goes according to the plan. But in, in cybersecurity world, <laughs> yeah. I mean, Eva, Eva knows better than me uh, that in cybersecurity world, most of the compromises and, and attacks happen because of misconfiguration and the lack of control that it should have been in place. Right. Yeah, it goes, it goes back yeah. to the network design because if you just say, well, we'll just send out ports and have a flat network so everything yeah. works, well, that's that's a problem. <laughs> yeah, we, we don't advocate that. That's for sure, right? And you think about segmentation, all the things we do there, right? That's where you get into those deep conversations around you know, device capabilities. How do we identify? How do we segment? What policy do we put around that in terms of you know where they can get on the network? Do we push it through a firewall, et cetera? So I'm I'm curious I'm I'm curious about something there though. So how much of this is a you know because obviously Cisco the products that Cisco has the the Cat nine Ks and and everything is is the the infrastructure of this. How much of this is a Cisco product versus you know an external standard? Yes. So when you think about so when you say external standard, so standard yeah, outside other, of well, like there's other governing bodies because I I think of like when you go to like a, a building architect. They have to put in all the thought process around exactly. a building management system and the phones and everything like that. Yeah. So when you, the technology from the technology side of it, 82.3BT standard, right? So from an enablement technology standpoint is it is, you know, we've used standards throughout um, like LDP, et cetera, the ones that we had talked about. Um, when we think about what's occurring on the in the design community side of it, when you think about architects and mechanical electrical plumbing firms and low voltage consultants um you know they're they're all transitioning as well in terms of looking at how to adapt to this new world and how do you do designs and do specifications to make sure that these components work together right that's the biggest thing when you start converging all these elements together it's just not for the sake of taking lighting and shades and elevator destination dispatch control and putting on a network and saying okay i put it on a network you want to have something actionable out of that and that's all the next level conversations around APIs and software driven type of components. Um, and that's really where we see the pivot in the industry occurring with those, you know, the specifiers in the world and the design community to understand truly what that outcome is, understand how we can achieve that via API. And then of course, understanding the standards that are in place to make sure that if it is some sort of esoteric device that we've never seen before, is it 802.3bt? Is it 802.3at? So going through that whole litany of understanding what we're trying to put onto the infrastructure to make sure that it's going to work. So it's really more of a case that this has been around, this is being worked on, and and you know the, the light manufacturer, all these all these other manufacturers want to do it, and Cisco's come in and and been more of an enabler. We, we're absolutely an enabler, right? And we're a driver of standards. Um, if you think about just purely PoE as a standard. Right, the industry went from you know we had pre-standard right for IP phones that we invented, then we went to AF fifteen four, then we went to AT thirty watts. We came out with UPOE, which was proprietary. But what did the industry do? Right, we ratified it to three BT, which is type three is sixty watt type four. So anytime we're gonna, anytime we can, we want to use a standard, and because that's how we we get adoption right from a globe standpoint. If you look at the success of the internet, it's because of IP. It's a standard. 
The same thing is going to occur here when you think about PoE. It's a global standard. It doesn't matter if I'm in Australia, if I'm, you know, uh, Mark's neighbor, if I'm Mir's neighbor in the in Europe, um, or you know, Evan and I in the states here. Um, we it's a standard. It doesn't matter where you go. It's the same exact thing, right? And that's where we really think we're going to drive um, adoption is because of that standard based approach. Yeah, I think that's the beauty of it. And you just talked about APIs. Um, that made me think, where do you see those APIs occurring? I certainly hope that you do not expect uh, IT teams to uh, start using uh, the APIs on the devices themselves, but rather use the uh, management systems like DNAC. Correct. And we, you know, some of our light, the partners that we've mentioned before um, here during the during the show is um, they've written to some of our next generation APIs or taking telemetry data out, right? The gRPC telemetry data, they're pulling that out of the switches for power utilization, as an example. They're using uh, RESTConf and NetConf for shutting ports down and bringing them back up. So that work has been done by the management system side of it on the individual component basis, right? The individual system basis. But of course, from a DNAC standpoint, right? The expectation is not for, you know, to fire up a Python script um, and go right to the APIs that are available um, on the environment. So, yeah, you mean, know. I would not, I would absolutely not like other parties to access the APIs on my switches right. <laughs> in the, uh, in the equipment yeah. rooms, no way uh, that's going to happen. You have to trust. Totally man. agree. And... <laughs> you <really need> trust. <laughs> I'm kidding. I'll be quiet now. I trust. I trust you, but ex uh, besides yeah, that, in infosec world, uh, Lauren, we say trust but verify. So that I think that's Mark's point. <laughs> I know. Yeah. yeah. Oh yeah. No, and that's where we look at. And you think about the infrastructure side of it, right? Um, all that northbound data that's going up in the DNA spaces from a platform standpoint, that's really where the API components are, right? In terms of looking at that Firehose API and grabbing the data that's interesting to you in terms of what you're trying to accomplish or looking at some of the app partners that are already out there. Um, as I mentioned, you know, like Tririga as an example, um, in terms of grabbing the data that they thought was interesting, right? Um, not having it talked down into the infrastructure. But does that mean that those partners like Signify or the ones you mentioned before uh, write plugins for, for example, DNAC uh, to extract that data, especially for them, so that they can, for example, create their own API on top of the existing systems that the IT management already has? Yeah, so a lot of those um, partners are, are writing to those other management components, right? Not deep into the infrastructure, um, certainly, right? A lot of it is around power data is very interesting to them. Um, and the ability to automate things from the standpoint of when you think about an environment where, you know, I, I say I had a failure of a driver in a light. Um, what we don't want to do from an IT standpoint is become an encumbrance to having things fixed quickly in the built environment. So some of the tooling that they've done in terms of understanding that um, you know, whether it's into DHCP as an example, if they're very dependent on DHCP, the ability to wipe a lease easily because when the device goes back in, it needs to get the same IP address that it had before for their control software. So there's been a lot of work done to make sure that, you know, we're from an IT professional standpoint, um, I don't need a massive help desk to go and 
figure out what's wrong in this built environment because the sheer number of devices that are out there. Yeah. So just remember when the lights go out, <laughs> it's probably DNS. It's never that. <laughs> <laughs> it's never it's a network well it, it, it makes me think i mean having multi-tenancy in a network is already complicated but now you have a multi-tenancy and quite a lot of uh, parties that if they cannot work actually turn off the light yeah i mean if there's direct access into the into the infrastructure certainly right um yeah. and that's why it's really you know when you look at the segmentation tools and all the other components that still apply right from a classic IT standpoint, um, we, we utilize them. And that's something to be mindful of as well, right, too, in terms of when you're doing your design, what does the operational side of it look like, not from an IT operation standpoint, but from a building operation standpoint? You know, it's very difficult. You can't just go in and upgrade a switch and say, I'm going to have a six-hour outage. Um, and someone could be in the building at that point in time, right? They need lights. So that needs to be coordinated. But, you know, we've done a lot of advancements, as I mentioned before, around just persistent PoE, perpetual PoE um, in the environment to, to get around some of those issues, right? But it's definitely be something to be mindful of as IT professionals on the on the building ops side. You know, I'm, Finally, I'm really, I'm really, architecture gets the role that it needs. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'm really curious now. I'm wondering how, how a light bulb gets profiled in ICE. <laughs> That'd be great to see. Yeah, that's so exciting. We use mud predominantly. So Evan, did you have a quick exit question or did I completely miss that? No, we're good. Okay, fantastic. Well, thank you everyone. This has been enlightening for me. Oh, pun. Um, get it light anyways. Uh, thank you, Bob. Thank you, Mir. Thank you, Mark. Thank you, Evan. I see you sh shaking your head at me and rolling your eyes. <laughs> you know, sorry, man. Um, Thanks for everyone Thank you, for listening. Lauren. If you're still here, I apologize. And thanks to everyone. And um, have a great week. We'll see you again next week on Cisco Champions Radio.